Section twenty four of Soldiers Pay by William Faulkner. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter seven continued. Section seven Voices. The town. I wonder what that woman that came home with him thinks about it, now he's taken another one. If I were that Saunders girl, I wouldn't take a man that brought another woman right up to my door, you might say. And that new one, what'll she do now? Go away and get another man, I guess? I hope she'll learn enough to get a well one this time. Funny goings-on in that house. And a preacher of the gospel, too. Even if he is Episcopal. If he wasn't such a nice man. George Farr. It isn't true, Cecily, darling, sweetheart. You can't. You can't. After your body prone and narrow as a pool dividing. The town. I hear that boy of Mahone's, that hurt fellow, and that girl of Saunders are going to get married. My wife said they never would, but I said all the time. Mrs. Burney. Men don't know. They should have looked out for him better, saying he never wanted for nothing. George Farr. Cecily, Cecily, is this death? The town. There's that soldier that came with Mahone. I guess that woman will take him now. But maybe she don't have to. He might have been saving time himself. Well, wouldn't you if you was him? Sergeant Madden. Powers, powers. A man's face spitted like a moth on a lance of flame. Powers, rotten luck for her. Mrs. Burney. Dewey, my boy. Sergeant Madden. No, Mum, he was all right. We did all we could. Cecily Saunders. Yes, yes, Donald. I will, I will, I will get used to your poor face, Donald. George, my dear love, take me away, George. Sergeant Madden. Oh, yes, he was all right. A man on a fire step, screaming with fear. George Farr. Cecily, how could you? How could you? The town. That girl, time she was took in hand by somebody. Running round town nearly naked. Good thing he's blind, ain't it? I guess she hopes he'll stay blind, too. Margaret Powers. No, no. Goodbye, dear, dead, dick, ugly, dead, dick. Joe Gilligan. He's dying. He gets the woman he doesn't want, even. While I am not dying. Margaret, what shall I do? What can I say? Emmy. Come here, Emmy. Ah, come to me, Donald. But he's dead. Cecily Saunders. George, my lover, my poor dear, what have we done? Mrs. Burney. Dewey, Dewey, so brave, so young. This was Donald, my son. He is dead. 8. Mrs. Powers mounted the stairs under Mrs. Saunders' curious eyes. The older woman had been cold, almost rude, but Mrs. Powers had won her point, and choosing Cecily's door from her mother's directions, she knocked. After a while she knocked again and called, Miss Saunders? Silence was again a hushed, tense interval when Cecily's muffled voice came through the door. Go away! Please, she insisted, I want to see you a moment. No! No, go away! But I must see you. There was no reply, and she added, I have just talked to your mother and to Dr. Mahone. Let me come in, won't you? 
She heard movement, a bed, then another interval. Fool, taking time to powder her face. But you would, too, she told herself. The door opened under her hand. Powder only made the traces of tears more visible, and Cecily turned her back as Mrs. Powers entered the room. She could see the indentation of a body on the bed and a crumpled pillow. Mrs. Powers, not being offered a chair, sat on the foot of the bed, and Cecily, across the room, leaning in a window and staring out, said ungraciously, "'What do you want?' "'How like her this room is,' thought the caller, observing. Pale maple and a triple mirrored dressing-table bearing a collection of fragile crystal— and delicate clothing carelessly about on chairs, on the floor. On a chest of drawers was a small camera picture framed. "'May I look?' she asked, knowing instinctively who it was. Cecily, stubbornly presenting her back in a thin, formless garment, through which light from the window passed, revealing her narrow torso, made no reply. Mrs. Powers approached and saw Donald Mahone, bareheaded in a shabby, unbuttoned tunic, standing before a corrugated iron wall, "'carrying a small resigned dog casually by the scruff of the neck like a handbag. "'That's so typical of him, isn't it?' she commented. "'Cecily said rudely, "'What do you want with me?' "'That's exactly what your mother asked me, you know. "'She seemed to think I was interfering also. "'Well, aren't you? "'Nobody asked you to come here?' "'Cecily turned, leaning her hip against the window ledge. "'I don't think it's interference when it's warranted, though, do you?' warranted. Who asked you to interfere? Did Donald do it, or are you trying to scare me off? You needn't tell me Donald asked you to get him out of it. It'll be a lie. But I'm not. I don't intend to. I'm trying to help you both. Oh, you are against me. Everybody's against me except Donald, and you keep him shut up like a, a prisoner. She turned quickly and leaned her head against the window. Mrs. Powers sat quietly examining her her frail revealed body under the silly garment she wore, a webby cloying thing worse than nothing, and a fit complement to the single belaced garment it revealed above the long hushed gleams of her stockings. If Cellini had been a hermit priest, he might have imagined her, Mrs. Powers thought, wishing mildly she could see the other naked. At last she rose from the bed and crossed to the window. Cecily kept her head stubbornly averted, and expecting tears she touched the girl's shoulder. Cecily, she said quietly. Cecily's green eyes were dry, stony, and she moved swiftly across the room with her delicate, narrow stride. She stood holding the door open. Mrs. Powers at the window did not accept. Did she ever, ever forget herself, she wondered, observing the studied grace of the girl's body turned on the laxed ball of a thigh. Cecily met her gaze with one of haughty, commanding scorn. "'Won't you even leave the room when you are asked?' she said, making her swift, coarse voice sound measured and cold. Mrs. Powers, thinking, "'Oh, hell, what's the use?' moved so as to lean her thigh against the bed. Cecily, without changing her position, moved the door for emphasis. Standing quietly, watching her studied fragility, "'Her legs are rather sweet,' she admitted. "'But why all this posing for me? I'm not a man.' Mrs. Powers ran her palms slowly along the smooth wood of the bed. Suddenly the other slammed the door and returned to the window. Mrs. Powers followed. Cecily, why can't we talk about it sensibly? The girl made no reply, ignoring her, crumpling the curtain in her fingers. Miss Saunders? Why can't you let me alone? Cecily flared suddenly, flaming out at her. 
I don't want to talk to you about it. Why do you come to me? Her eyes darkened. They were no longer hard. If you want him, take him then. You have every chance you could want, keeping him shut up there so that even I can't see him. But I don't want him. I'm trying to straighten things out for him. Don't you know that if I had wanted him, I would have married him before I brought him home? You tried it and couldn't. That's why you didn't. Oh, don't say it wasn't, she rushed on as the other would have spoken. I saw it that first day that you were after him. And if you weren't, why do you keep on staying here? You know that's a lie, Mrs. Powers replied calmly. Then what makes you so interested in him if you aren't in love with him? This is hopeless. She put her hand on the other's arm. Cecily shrank away quickly, and she returned to lean again against the bed. She said, Your mother's against this, and Donald's father expects it. And what chance will you have against your mother? Against yourself. I certainly don't need any advice from you. Cecily turned her head. Her haughtiness, her anger were gone, and in their place was a thin, hopeless despair. Even her voice, her whole attitude had changed. Don't you see how miserable I am, she said pitifully. I didn't mean to be rude to you, but I don't know what to do. I don't know. I am in such trouble. Something terrible has happened to me. Please. Mrs. Powers, seeing her face, went to her quickly, putting her arm about the girl's narrow shoulders. Cecily avoided her. Please, please go. Tell me what it is. No. No, I can't. Please. They paused, listening, footsteps approaching, stopped beyond the door. A knock and her father's voice called her name. Yes? Dr. Mahone is downstairs. Can you come down? The two women stared at each other. Come, Mrs. Powers said. Cecily's eyes went dark again, and she whispered, No, 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 trembling. Sis, her father repeated. Say yes, Mrs. Powers whispered. Yes, Daddy, I'm coming. All right. The footsteps retreated, and Mrs. Powers drew Cecily toward the door. The girl resisted. I can't go like this, she said hysterically. Yes, you can. It's all right. Come. Mrs. Saunders, sitting militant, formal, and erect upon her chair, was saying as they entered, May I ask what this, this woman has to do with it? Her husband chewed a cigar. Light falling upon the rector's face held it like a grey, bitten mask. Cecily ran to him. Uncle Joe, she cried. Cecily, her mother said sharply, what do you mean, coming down like that? The rector rose, huge and black, embracing her. Uncle Joe, she repeated, clinging to him. Now, Robert, Mrs. Saunders began, but the rector interrupted her. Cecily, he said, raising her face. She twisted her chin and hid her face against his coat. Robert, said Mrs. Saunders. The rector spoke grayly. Cecily, we have talked it over together, and we think your mother and father. She moved in her silly, revealing garment. Daddy, she exclaimed, staring at her father. He would not meet her gaze, but sat, slowly twisting his cigar. The rector continued. We think that you will only, that you, they say that Donald is going to die, Cecily, he finished. Lithe as a sapling, she thrust herself backward against his arm bending to see his face staring at him. "'Oh, Uncle Joe, have you gone back on me, too?' she cried, passionately. 9. 
George Farr had been quite drunk for a week. His friend, the drug clerk, thought he was going crazy. He had become a local landmark, a tradition. Even the town soaks began to look upon him with respect, calling him by his given name, swearing undying devotion to him. In the intervals of belligerent or rollicking or maudlin inebriation, he knew periods of devastating despair like a monstrous bliss, like that of a caged animal, of a man being slowly tortured to death, a minor monotony of pain. As a rule, though, he managed to stay fairly drunk, her narrow body sweetly dividing, naked, have another drink. I'll kill you if you keep on fooling around her. My girl, my girl, her narrow, another drink. Oh, God, oh, God, sweetly dividing for another. Have drink, what hell I care. Oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. Though nice people no longer spoke to him on the streets, he was, after a fashion, cared for and protected by casual acquaintances and friends, both black and white, as in the way of small towns particularly, and of the inferior classes anywhere. He sat glassy-eyed among fried smells, among noises, at an oilcloth-covered table. Clover blossoms, clover blossoms, sang in nasal voice terribly, the melody ticked off at spaced intervals by a small monotonous sound like a clock bomb going off like this. Clock tick tickber tick tick ticker ticks Beside him sat two of his new companions, quarrelling, spitting, holding hands, and weeping over the cracked interminability of the phonograph record. Clover blossoms, it repeated with saccharine passion. When it ran down, they repaired to a filthy alley behind the filthier kitchen to drink of George Farr's whiskey. Then they returned and played the record through again, clutching hands while frank tears slid down their otherwise unwashed cheeks. Clover blossoms. Truly, vice is a dull and decorous thing. No life in the world is as hard, requiring so much sheer physical and moral strength as the so-called primrose path. Being good is much less trouble. Clover blossoms. After a while, his attention was called to the fact that someone had been annoying him for some time. Focusing his eyes, he at last recognized the proprietor in an apron on which he must have dried his dishes for weeks. What in hell you want? he asked with feeble, liquid belligerence, and the man finally explained to him that he was wanted on the telephone in a neighboring drugstore. He rose, pulling himself together. Clover blossoms. After a few years, he languished from a telephone mouthpiece holding himself erect, watching without interest a light globe over the prescription desk describing slow, concentric circles. George? There was something in the unknown voice speaking his name with such anguish as to almost shock him sober. George. This George. Hello. George, it's Cecily. Cecily. Drunkenness left him like a retreating wave. He could feel his heart stop, then surge, deafening him, blinding him with his own blood. George, do you hear me? Ah, George, to have been drunk now. Cecily, oh, Cecily. Yes, yes, 
gripping the instrument as though this would keep her against escape. Yes, Cecily, Cecily, it's George. Come to me now, at once. Yes, yes, now. Come, George, darling, hurry, hurry. Yes, he cried again. Hello, hello? The line made no response. He waited, but it was dead. His heart pounded and pounded, hotly. He could taste his own hot, bitter blood in his throat. Cecily! Oh, Cecily! He plunged down the length of the store, and while a middle-aged clerk filling a prescription poised his bottle to watch in dull amazement, George Farr tore his shirt open at the throat and thrust his whole head beneath a gushing water tap in a frenzy of activity. Cecily! Oh, Cecily! Ten. He seemed so old, so tired as he sat at the head of the table toying with his food as if the very fibre of him had lost all resilience. Gilligan ate with his usual informal appetite, and Donald and Emmy sat side by side so that Emmy could help him. Emmy enjoyed mothering him, now that she could never have him again for a lover. She objected with passionate ardour when Mrs. Powers offered to relieve her. The Donald she had known was dead. This one was but a sorry substitute, but Emmy was going to make the best of it as women will. She had even got accustomed to taking her food after it had cooled. Mrs. Powers sat watching them. Emmy's shock of no particular colour hair was near his worn head in intent devotion. Her labour-worried hand seemed to have an eye of its own, so quick, so tender it was to anticipate him and guide his hand with the food she had prepared for him. Mrs. Powers wondered which Donald Emmy loved the more, wondering if she had not perhaps forgotten the former one completely, save as a symbol of sorrow. Then the amazing logical thought occurred to her that here was the woman for Donald to marry. Of course it was. Why had no one thought of that before? Then she told herself that no one had done very much thinking during the whole affair, that it had got on without any particular drain on any intelligence. Why did we take it for granted that he must marry Cecily and no other? Yet we all accepted it as an arbitrary fact, and off we went with our eyes closed, and our mouths open like hounds in full cry. But would Emmy take him? Wouldn't she be so frightened at the prospect that she'd be too self-conscious with him afterward, to care for him as skillfully as she does now? Wouldn't it cause her to confuse in her mind, to his detriment, two separate Donalds, a lover and an invalid? I wonder what Joe will think about it. She looked at Emmy, impersonal as omnipotence, helping Donald with effacing skill, seeming to envelop him, yet never touching him. Anyway, I'll ask her, she thought, sipping her tea. Night was come. Tree fogs, remembering last night's rain, resumed their monotonous moulding of liquid beads of sound, Grass blades and leaves losing shapes of solidity gained shapes of sound. The still suspire of earth, of the ground preparing for slumber, flowers by day, spikes of bloom became with night's spikes of scent. The silver tree at the corner of the house hushed its never still, never escaping ecstasy. Already toads hopped along concrete pavements, drinking poisoned heat through their dragging bellies. Suddenly the rector started from his dream. We are making mountains from molehills as usual. If she wants to marry Donald, I'm sure her people will not withhold their consent always. Why should they object to their daughter marrying him? Do you know? Hush, she said. He looked up at her, startled. Then seeing her warning glance touch Mahone's oblivious head, he understood. She saw Emmy's wide, shocked eyes on her, and she rose at her place. You're through, aren't you? she said to the rector. Suppose we go to the study. Mahone sat quiet, chewing. 
She could not tell whether or not he'd heard. She passed behind Emmy and, leaning to her, whispered, I want to speak to you. Don't say anything to Donald. The rector, preceding her, fumbled the light on in the study. You must be careful, she told him, how you talk before him, how you tell him. Yes, he agreed apologetically. I was so deep in thought. I know you were. I don't think it's necessary to tell him at all until he asks. And that will never be. She loves Donald. She will not let her people prevent her marrying him. I'm not customarily in favor of such a procedure as instigating a young woman to marry against her parents' wishes, but in this case, do you not think that I am inconsistent, that I am partial because my son is involved? No, no, of course not. Don't you agree with me that Cecily will insist on the wedding? Yes, indeed. What else could she say? Gilligan and Mahone had gone, and Emmy was clearing the table when she returned. Emmy whirled upon her. She ain't going to take him? What was Uncle Joe saying? Her people don't like the idea, that's all. She hasn't refused, but I think we'd better stop it now, Emmy. She's changed her mind so often nobody can tell what she'll do. Emmy turned back to the table, lowering her head, scraping a plate. Mrs. Powers watched her busy elbow, hearing the little clashing noises of china and silver. A bowl of white roses shattered slowly upon the center of the table. What do you think, Emmy? I don't know, Emmy replied sullenly. She ain't my kind. I don't know nothing about it. Mrs. Powers approached the table. Emmy, she said. The other did not raise her head, made no reply. She turned the girl gently by the shoulder. Would you marry him, Emmy? Emmy straightened hotly, clutching a plate and a fork. Me? Me marry him? Me take another's leavings? Donald, Donald. And her leavings at that, her that's run after every boy in town, dressed up in her silk clothes? Mrs. Powers moved back to the door, and Emmy scraped dishes fiercely. This plate became blurred. She blinked and saw something splash on it. She shan't see me cry. She whispered passionately, bending her head lower, waiting for Mrs. Powers to ask her again. Donald, Donald. When she was young, going to school in the spring, having to wear coarse dresses and shoes while other girls wore silk and thin leather, being not pretty at all while other girls were pretty, walking home to where work waited her, while other girls were riding in cars or having ice cream or talking to boys and dancing with them, with boys that had no use for her. Sometimes he would step out beside her, so still, so quick, all of a sudden, and she didn't mind not having silk. And when they swam and fished and roamed the woods together, she forgot she wasn't pretty even, because he was beautiful, with his body all brown and quick, so still, making her feel beautiful too. And when he said, Come here, Emmy, she went to him, and wet grass and dew under her and over her his head, with the whole sky for a crown and the moon running on them like water that wasn't wet and that you couldn't feel. Marry him? Yes. Yes. Let him be sick. She would cure him. Let him be a Donald that had forgotten her. She'd not forgotten. She could remember enough for both of them. Yes, yes, she cried, soundlessly stacking dishes, waiting for Mrs. Powers to ask her again. Her red hands were blind. Tears splashed fatly on her wrists. Yes, yes, trying to think it so loudly that the other must hear. She shan't see me cry, she whispered again, but the other woman only stood in the door watching her busy back. So she gathered up the dishes slowly, there being no reason to linger any longer. 
Keeping her head averted, she carried the dishes to the pantry door, slowly, waiting for the other to speak again. But the other woman said nothing, and Emmy left the room, her pride forbidding her to let the other see her tears. 11. The study was dark when she passed, but she could see the rector's head in dim silhouette against the more spacious darkness outside the window. She passed slowly onto the veranda, leaning her quiet, tall body against a column in the darkness beyond the fan of light from the door. She listened to the hushed, myriad life of night things, to the slow voices of people passing unseen along an unseen street, watching the hurried, staring twin eyes of motor-cars like restless insects. A car slowing drew up to the corner, and after a while a dark figure came along the pale gravel of the path, hurried yet diffident. It paused and screamed delicately in mid-path, then it sped on toward the steps where it stopped again, and Mrs. Powers stepped forward from beside her post. Oh, gasped Miss Cecily Saunders, starting, lifting her hand slimly against her dark dress. Mrs. Powers? Yes. Come in, won't you? Cecily ran with nervous grace up the steps. It was a frog, she explained between her quick respirations. I nearly stepped. Uh. She shuddered, a slim, muted flame, hushed darkly in dark clothing. Is Uncle Joe here? May I? Her voice died away diffidently. He's in the study, Mrs. Powers answered. What has happened to her? She thought. Cecily stood so that the light from the hall fell full on her. There was in her face a thin, nervous despair, a hopeless recklessness, and she stared at the other woman's shadowed face for a long moment. Then she said, Thank you, thank you, suddenly, hysterically, and ran quickly into the house. Mrs. Powers looked after her, then following, saw her dark dress. She's going away, Mrs. Powers thought, with conviction. Cecily flew on ahead like a slim, dark bird into the unlighted study. Uncle Joe? she said, poised, touching either side of the door-frame. The rector's chair creaked suddenly. "'Eh?' he said, and the girl sailed across the room like a bat, dark in the darkness, sinking at his feet, clutching his knees. He tried to raise her, but she clung to his legs the tighter, burrowing her head into his lap. "'Uncle Joe, forgive me. Forgive me. Yes, yes, I knew you would come to us. I told them. No, no, I... I... You've always been so good, so sweet to me that I couldn't... She clutched him again fiercely. Cecily, what is it? Now, now, you mustn't cry about it. Come now, what is it? Knowing a sharp premonition, he raised her face, trying to see it, but it was only a formless soft blur warmly in his hands. Say you forgive me first, dear Uncle Joe, won't you? Say it, say it. If you won't forgive me, I don't know what'll become of me. His hand slipping downward felt her delicate, tense shoulders, and he said, Of course I forgive you. Thank you. Oh, thank you. You are so kind. She caught his hand, holding it against her mouth. What is it, Cecily? he asked, quietly trying to soothe her. She raised her head. I'm going away. And you aren't going to marry Donald? She lowered her head to his knees again, clutching his hand in her long, nervous fingers, holding it against her face. I cannot. I cannot. I am a, I am not a good woman any more, dear Uncle Joe. Forgive me. Forgive me. He withdrew his hand, and she let herself be raised to her feet, feeling his arms, his huge, kind body. There, there, 
patting her back with his gentle, heavy hand. Don't cry. I must go, she said at last, moving slimly and darkly against his bulk. He released her. She clutched his hand again, sharply, letting it go. Goodbye, she whispered, and fled swift and dark as a bird, gracefully to a delicate tapping of heels as she had come. She passed Mrs. Powers on the porch without seeing her and sped down the steps. The other woman watched her slim, dark figure until it disappeared. After an interval, the car that had stopped at the corner of the garden flashed on its lights and drove away. Mrs. Powers, pressing the light switch, entered the study. The rector stared at her as she approached the desk, quiet and hopeless. "'Cecily has broken the engagement, Margaret, so the wedding is off.' "'Nonsense,' she told him sharply, touching him with her firm hand. "'I'm going to marry him myself. I intended to all the time, didn't you suspect?' Twelve. San Francisco, California, April twenty-fifth, 1919. Darling Margaret, I told Mother last night, and of course she thinks we are too young, but I explained to her how times have changed since the war, how the war makes you older than they used to. I see fellows my age that did not serve specially flying, which is an education in itself, and they seem like kids to me, because at last I have found the woman I want, and my kid days are over. After knowing so many women to found you so far away when I did not expect it, Mother says for me to go in business and make money if I expect a woman to marry me, so I'm going to start in tomorrow. I've got the place all ready. Till it will not be long till I see you and take you in my arms at last and always. How can I tell you how much I love you? You are so different from them. Loving you has already made me a serious man realizing responsibilities. They are all so silly compared with you, talking of jazz and going someplace where all the time I have been invited on parties, but I refuse, because I rather sit in my room thinking of you putting my thoughts down on paper, let them have their silly fun. I think of you always, and if it did not make you so unhappy, I want you to think of me always. But don't. I would not make you unhappy at all, my own dearest. So think of me, and remember I love you only, and will love you only, will love you always. Forever yours, Julian. 13. The Baptist minister, a young dervish in a white lawn tie, being most available, came and did his duty and went away. He was young and fearfully conscientious and kind-hearted, upright and passionately desirous of doing good, so much so that he was a bore. But he had soldiered after a fashion, and he liked and respected Dr. Mahone. "'refusing to believe that simply because Dr. Mahone was Episcopal "'he was going to hell as soon as he died. "'He wished them luck and fled busily away, "'answering his own obscure compulsions. "'They watched his busy, energetic backside until he was out of sight. "'Then Gilligan silently helped Mahone down the steps "'and across the lawn to his favourite seat beneath the tree. "'The new Mrs. Mahone walked silently beside them. "'Silence was her wont, but not Gilligan's. "'Yet he had spoken no word to her. Walking near him, she put out her hand and touched his arm. He turned to her, a face so bleak, so reft, that she knew a sharp revulsion, a sickness with everything. Dick, Dick, how well you got out of this mess! She looked quickly away across the garden, beyond the spire where pigeons crooned the afternoon away, unemphatic as sleep, biting her lips. Married, she had never felt so alone. Gilligan, "'settled Mahone in his chair with his impersonal, half-reckless care. "'Mahone said, "'Well, Joe, I'm married at last.' "'Yes,' answered Gilligan. "'His careless spontaneity was gone. "'Even Mahone noticed it in his dim, oblivious way. 
I say, Joe. What is it, Lute? Mahone was silent, and his wife took her customary chair, leaning back and staring up into the tree. He said at last, Carry on, Joe. Not now, Lute. I don't feel so many. Think I'll take a walk, he answered, feeling Mrs. Mahone's eyes on him. He met her gaze harshly, combatively. Joe, she said, quietly, bitterly. Gilligan saw her pallid face, her dark, unhappy eyes, her mouth like a tired scar, and he knew shame. His own bleak face softened. All right, Lute, he said, quietly matching her tone, with a trace of his old ambiguous unseriousness. What'll it be? Bust up a few more minor empires, eh? Just a trace, but it was there. Mrs. Mahone looked at him again with gratitude, and that old grave happiness which he knew so well, unsmiling but content, which had been missing for so long, so long. And it was as though she had laid her firm, strong hand on him. He looked quickly away from her face, sad and happy, not bitter any more. Carry on, Joe. End of section 24 Read by Sandra, Montreal, 2022